Days of Noah Part 8. I think I'm landing the plane today, but whether I land it today or not, my sweet bride that you just heard is preaching next Sunday. So she will be here. She will bring a great, great word of the Lord. We're eight weeks in on this, so I will try to not belabor too much of what we talked about. But it has been... Have you enjoyed the series? Well, as soon as we land this plane, we're going to take another one off. The one we're taking off is Adam, the first man. And I'm going to talk about where we come from. Are we old? Are we new? What does it matter? We're going to look at all the things from evolution to what all goes on with us humans. And I'll try to dig it out deep for you. And I'll try to hopefully expand our brains a little bit. But it's going to be a fun study looking at Adam and where did humans come from. And I think it'll be challenging for all of us. And I'll do my best to make it interesting and meaningful as well. But for this one, we're talking about the days of Noah. And this has been our, our kind of theme that we've looked at. This is the chart for the last eight weeks. When, when Jesus mentions days of Noah, He's talking about this period of time right here. Here's Noah. There's the flood we all read about. And in that, I've tried to do my best to take us from the beginning of time with Adam, which is who we're going to study next in depth. We've talked about Adam, the, la the first Adam, Jesus, the last Adam, all the righteous people that ended up here and what happened to them, that this would become the most wicked generation ever. But what happened? We've looked at all their wives and what was going on with women. We've looked at angels and demons and the fight between Jesus and the fight between the devil. And I want to try to do something today that's much more toward us today and not so much talking about Noah, but connecting it to us. This is what Jesus says, a few verses, Matthew 24, verse 37. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in the days of Noah. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And in this phrase, I highlighted in yellow and one in blue until the day that Noah entered the ark. In a casual reading, it might not mean a lot, but until the day he had been working over a hundred years to build the boat. The end of Genesis 5 says he was 500, and by the time he got on the boat in Genesis 6 and 7, he's 600. So it took him somewhere in that hundred-year span to build this boat we all call the ark. I'm sure his hands are calloused. I'm sure his back is sore. People have made fun of him. I'm sure his wife rolled her eyes several times times and the kids are like, oh my God, dad, we got to build this thing again. A hundred years doing the same thing, just over and over. There's no rain, there's no animals, there's nothing, but Jesus gives us an intimation that whatever it was, there was coming a day when it would all be settled. And do you know there may be times in your life where you wonder, is it worth it? Are the prayers worth it? Does the prayer work? Does my life work? the Bible, all this stuff we call Christianity. But Jesus lets us into something that there's coming a day where everything you've believed and worked for will pay off. There's coming a day, Christians that believe in Jesus, that follow Jesus, there's coming a day where it will pay off. There's an old hymn that says there's coming a day. No heartache, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. And the, the actual phrase goes, what a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day. There's coming a day, this is what the whole series is about, when Jesus returns and it pays off. 
But I know that there are times in life it doesn't feel like it pays off. You pray, nothing happens. You heard Robin's testimony. You serve him all your life. You end up with cancer anyways. Like, where are you, God? I'm doing my part. I'd appreciate it if you could help a brother out. There have been times I've, I've struggled in life and wondered, where is God? So I do know when he says, until that day, that that's not as romantic as it sounds. Because there was, a lot of, there was a lot of scarring. There was a lot of sweat and blood and tears to build that boat for a hundred years. But I want to say this before we get into it. I don't know where you fall in your faith, but everything you believe in Jesus Christ, one day He will reward you. And it, and it will be worth it. It will be worth everything you went through. It will be worth the pain and the sorrow and the sweat and the effort that you put for it. So Jesus picks up the thought, and this is kind of where we left it on the return of Jesus, and that we're, we're stopping to talk about me now in 2023, and we're going to talk about Him. Because the reality of life is, why are you here anyway? The reason American Christianity is so weak is because Jesus is more about serving us than us serving Jesus. It's about what He can do for me, not what I can do for Him. It's help me, fix me, deliver me, change me. You know, my little Jesus that's everything I need. Give me, fill my little basket up with all my goods. And the reality of what I said last week and left off is it's very challenging in Christianity when you take that thought and you dump that bucket out and you hand the bucket to Him and say, you owe me nothing. What do you want me to do for you? That, that's what this is about. What can I do for you? Not what you can do now for me. You've saved me. You call me. So I need to know what do you want out of my life, God? And that's a hard place to be. I'm not even pretending like that's easy at times, especially when you're young, to pray the prayer, what do you want out of me? Typically, the way we sell Jesus is we sell it to all your woes, ills, weaknesses, and we throw Jesus into your little weak bucket and say, he'll make you a better human. So we even market a Jesus that will fix all your woes. And what we end up with is a bunch of people going, well, what happens when he doesn't fix all my woes? What happens when I have a hellacious day? What happens when my prayers didn't get answered? What happens when I gave $5 in the offering and I didn't get a million back? I'd like to know what's going on. Because we have to come to ask the real question of why are you here anyway? You don't need Jesus to get rich. You just need a good business education and some money smarts. You don't need Jesus to get healed. you got doctors. You can use doctors. You can do all kinds of things. So the question becomes is in why, what are we selling here? And I, I left you here last week when Jesus said, oh, you want to really know what it's about? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. Peace out, man. That's not for me. I don't want that Jesus. I want the one marketed that's going to Get me out of debt that's going to pay off my credit card, Jesus. It's going to get me a new car, Jesus, a new house, Jesus. Uh, and so if we're not careful, we lose sight that the whole reason of the gospel is He's coming back. And that has to motivate us. That's, the, that's why He picked the story of Noah, because it was a story of a looming uh, presence of God that was about to come and do something. So we pick this looming moment. There's coming a day. And so he chooses the story. And he, but he says that story of Noah is going to be exactly like it is, Mark, in your generation before I return. 
This looming moment, Shiloh, that's sitting right over our shoulders, but we've been in it so long, we've been in the game so long, we lose the expectation. We, we're not even expecting anything to happen. And so we go to the story. Look at what the story. This is God talking to Noah in Genesis. He shows up and says, look, I'm about to do it. I'm about to do something. What, a hundred years here, and then in one day you show up and go, look, I'm about to do it? It would make me ask the question, would I still be in the game after a hundred years? Because the story lends itself that God didn't show up every day and help the brother. You go get the trees, you cut the trees, you stack the trees, I'll be back in a hundred years. Peace out. Like that, that, that passion for God to do something for God when there's no fruit to it at all. You just do it because you know there's something valuable in it. And then God shows up and says, look, I'm about to do something. It's almost here. I'm, I'm right on the hills. I'll, I'll give you something. If you've not been with us a while, this may sound a little strange to you. Robin and I moved here 12 years ago. And in the move here, I got a telephone call from Kentucky. And the telephone call went like this. I was praying for your church and I saw a vision. Well, well that automatically makes me go, oh God, it's one of these Python things. And you know, I mean, you just get kind of skeptical after all these years. Like, oh, here's another, I heard the Lord. But I listened. I thought, well, I want to listen and, and at least be kind. And, and it said this. I, I saw your church, and I saw a line of cars that were lined up from the interstate all the way down the roads, all the way to, to your church and your parking lot. And they were crammed trying to get in. And I asked God, what does this mean? And God told me, this is the, the message to me. God told me to call you and tell you that there's coming a moment where people are going to come from all over because you're going to be known as a house of healing, a house of hope, a house of freedom, and God is going to send people from all over who want to find healing and freedom. And I said to that exactly what you said. Well, praise God. That sounds awesome. That doesn't pay the bills, but praise God. Let's roll. And so we kept going about doing church and, you know, on the corner, and then I get a call from a guy, pastor friend, in Austin, Texas. He was flying from Atlanta to Austin. As he's flying over Atlanta, he has a vision. Anybody want to guess what it is? Same thing. He says to me, hey, Mark, I, I was praying for you, and I, I looked out of the window of my plane, and I saw something strange. And I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be that same thing. He says, I saw a line of cars coming down the interstate and they were getting off an exit, but they couldn't exit because there were so many cars. So I started following those cars in the vision and they ended up in your parking lot. And I asked God, what does this mean? And God told me to call you and tell you that people are going to come from all over to come to your church because it's going to be a house of healing, a house of freedom, and a house of redemption. And I said, well, praise God. 
I take that too. And then today I told the story in the first service. And this lady came up. I took a picture of her. I wish I got it up there for you. I said, I got to get a picture. I took a picture of her. I said, I got to have a picture just for my phone to keep this moment. She said, do you know why I'm here? And I said, "Uh, you like church. I don't know. (laughs) She said, I'm here. And I've even tried not to come back. But every time I try, I'm here because the Lord told me this was going to be a house of healing and his glory was going to be on this corner and I was supposed to come to this corner and I'm going to be part of it. And I said, well, well, praise God. I don't know what God's doing, but but that sounds romantic. That sounds romantic that, that cars are lined up. But what that means is there's nowhere to sit. What that means is there's no toilet paper. I mean, come on, let's leave romance behind. That means the air conditioning can't hold that amount of people. That means we have to have multiple services. That means some of the lazy people got to start working in the nursery. That means we have to empty trash. That means we have to buy more toilet paper. That means we need more student workers. We need more B groups. We need more disciples. It's romantic until you realize God needs something out of you. I just want it to be all God. I just want to show up and go, woo, woo. Can't you feel it? Woo! You don't even have to speak in tongues. It just feels good. But the reality is there's nothing romantic about revival. There's nothing romantic about look. Now watch, it feels romantic. Can you imagine a hundred years of working your tail off and you finally finish the boat and you're like, whew. And your wife is like, finally, we can have dinner at a decent hour. And your kids are like, I don't ever want to do another tree, daddy, ever. And so you're thinking, God, this is it. And then God shows up on your door and knocks on your door and says, when he answered, he says, look, I'm about to do something. And from the kitchen, Miss Noah, oh, glory to God. Oh, yes, Jesus. Oh, and the kids are like, what does this mean? We could finally get on the boat. And God's like, yes, this is the moment. The boat has been made for this very moment. And everybody's giddy, just like we were. Cars are coming from everywhere. Revival's going to break out. We're giddy. But the sad thing is you keep reading the Bible, it's a disaster. I'm going to confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat, verse 18, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. It's not that romantic now because I better make sure my daughter-in-laws like me because I'm going to be hemmed up with them for a year. And I sure don't want to be on a boat with my wife for a year. A whole year. Take everybody with you, son. Every, all of you are going to go. You're going to have to learn how to have some relational, relational equity here, fellas. Maybe one of the reasons we don't see anything yet is many of God's people don't know how to have relational equity. We tick each other off. I don't like you. I don't like you. Well, I don't like you. Well, I don't really like you either. There's better preachers down the road. I know. I tell you to go there. Like, we can't even get along. So when we say revival, you think you're going to do it by yourself? You think you get to enjoy revival and go, ooh, it's all about me. No, it's not. 
It's about us. And us irritates people. Us gets on your nerves. Us has body odor. Us clogs up the toilet. And just so you don't understand how romantic revival is, I'm sitting at home and I get a text message from my wife. And I knew it wasn't the normal text because it came on the heels of 47 others back to back. It was one of those... Bzz, bzz, bzz. Now mine does two beeps. Oh my God. Like somebody's dead. Like a woman. It's just one of those, oh gosh, she's going to go on a rant. And I'm reading it and it's like, there's a rat in the basement. And I'm like, it's a rat. He's not going to bother you. No, Mark, this is a rat. I said, Robin, I'm, I'm down there every day. There probably is a little mouse. Just leave him alone. He's probably down there with the bee students eating Pop-Tarts. Let him, let him enjoy his life. There's tons of candy down there. The kids have left it. This rat's probably thinking he's in heaven. Just leave him alone. So she calls Phil. Something's got to be done about the rat. And I'm like, okay, okay. So we get down there, and now I'm down there. I, I've been there for four years, never even seen a critter. She wasn't lying. It was the blooming size of a chihuahua. I am, am I lying? I am not lying. We were sitting down having a meeting, and all of a sudden I see this thing walk right in front of the door. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I freaked out. I don't normally freak out, but I immediately pull my legs up. Like, ah. And then I'm thinking, that's not going to work. He could jump. Like literally, it was like a, it, literally, I, I'm not lying. It was like a small chihuahua. And I was like, oh God. Uh, and I was freaked out like I'm not a good pastor at all. Like I just start freaking out. I don't even speak in tongues. I'm so scared. The thing runs off. Well, now there's three grown men and Robin. She's like, I'm not looking for it. Go look for it. I don't want to look for it. Mark, this, this rat cannot be there on Sunday. I said, well, if it is, you'll know it. <laughs> Because it's big. So my wife has me crawling on my hands in the basement, looking. Now, I, didn't get, I, I stayed way back. Like, I don't know. Just so you all know, we never found it. I'm just saying, if something drops out of the ceiling, run. And just know it's probably not revival, but it might feel like revival. I said all that to say this, it's not as romantic as it sounds to have revival because you have to deal with the rats, you have to deal with the people, you have to deal with flushing toilets, you have to buy all the diapers for the nursery. Oh, it gets worse. He goes on to say, bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat with you. Now, if, if I was building the boat, just so you don't know, I don't, I don't think I'm that spiritual because I would have said, you're kidding. I have spent a hundred dad blame years building your boat and now I'm responsible for the animals? You want me to keep them alive? Me. I, I am a vineyard guy. I make grapes and get drunk. I don't do animals. I don't know why you've put the responsibility on me. And it's, watch, 
I have to keep them alive for a year. Uh, I, not God. You would think if I built the boat, he would keep the animals alive. Like, hey, I'm gonna, I got your back. God doesn't even have my back. You build the boat, go get the animals, put them in there, and keep them alive. And if they die, it's your fault. I'm holding you responsible. Uh, uh, and you know his wife is ticked. I thought you told me all we were going to do is build a boat. Now we've got to keep the animals alive? I know, I know. Oh, it gets worse. He goes on to say, and be sure to, meaning don't put this on me, son. Be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for the animals. So it's my job now to feed them? You're God. Why can't they just hibernate? Why can't you just kill them all and recreate them again? And he's like, you know, you worked really hard, and, and I told you I'm about to do it, and this is my thinking. I'm all for revival coming to Believer's Church, but the sad part is, is to think that the moment it gets here, it releases you of responsibility when it demands more of you. It feels good to talk about revival. Oh, look at what God is doing. But the moment you say, look at what God is doing, the nature of that is it requires more responsibility. It requires me to begin to ask myself the hard questions because nobody ever talks about if all the animals are eating, what happens after they eat? I'm not talking about rat poop. I'm talking about elephant poop, rhinoceros poop, hippo poop. And you know Miss Noah ain't cleaning it. She's probably like, you just need to be glad I got on the boat. So who for a year, for one whole year, God didn't have them go to sleep. God didn't hibernate them for a year while the rains are coming. He has a responsibility to keep them alive, feed them, and clean up after them. And it's often why revival comes to other countries and not America. Because in America, I'm too selfish for revival because I don't want responsibility. I don't want to have to do things I don't want to do. I want God just to bless me, help me, and fix me and do it on my timetable with 30 minutes a week on a Sunday. And then I just want him to give me a car and pay my credit and help me get a house and get me back in school and let my kid get on the praise team and let this happen on the football team and the soccer team and we want to know well I don't know why God doesn't come the reason God doesn't come who's going to work who's going to do the job who's going to bear the responsibility who's going to clean the mess up who's going to clean up after all of it yeah you built a boat but now you got to feed them and clean up after them so when we hear cars are coming from all over I do get excited but then I have to ask myself the hard question, and I asked it to myself. I asked myself, am I willing to bear the weight of the responsibility for Mark, for my children, and for my generation? Because it is a weighty thing. It is a weighty thing to bear the weight of responsibility that God has put something on our shoulders. I wish God would just come down and just blow fires and, and just 
do all kind of like amazing things in the sky that we could go, that's God. And he's like, dude, no, I'm not doing that. The amazing thing is going to be in you. But you're too distracted. You're too busy. You're too overwhelmed. You're too selfish, Mark. And to be honest with you, let's, let's not play the game too deep here. Like, I like to go hike. I like to go to the gym. I know that doesn't look like I do, but I go. I like the gym. I like sitting in the sauna. I like playing guitar. I like cheer. I like football. I like UFC fighting. Like, I enjoy life. So if you say, well, more people are coming, and, and that, doesn't that feel great to have more? And I'm like, yeah, but the, the weight of the responsibility, and here's to help you feel better. Just to think this through for a minute. The guy that God asked to bear the weight to, to build the boat, get the animals, feed them, and clean up after them had to live in such a way for himself and his family that his generation would know God. But let's don't get too religious here. The guy God picked had some alcohol issues. Don't act like God's looking for perfect people. God just needs somebody to go, I'll do it. And all your little quirks, he's okay with it. Just tell him you'll do it. And we've got this religion. I just got to clean myself up. I'm not. No, don't do that at all. Just step on the game and go, God, look, I'm a great dude and I like my great juice, if you know what I mean. But if you want me to build a boat, count me in, I'll build a boat. And at the end of building a boat, you would think the guy would have started a church. He didn't start a church. He got off the boat. He wiped his brow and thought, my God, we're all still alive and she didn't kill me. What are you going to do? I'm going to go plant me some grapes. Make me some wine. Kick a few back. Boy, did a good job. Why would God pick a man like that? Why would God pick a man that couldn't put his beer down? Why would God pick a man that would have so many scars of a past that, that just reeks of failure? There's something about bearing the weight. The weight is not that you're perfect. The weight is not that you do life great. The weight is in your weakness, Davis, he is made strong. In your weakness, Kyle Nams, he is made strong. In your weakness, Jeff, he's made strong. That's where we have to get to. You have to get to a place I don't know anybody in here perfected, but what I sure would like to say is, God, in my brokenness and in my weakness and in my failure, if you can use anything, God, use me. Use me. Use me. The, the worst thing we ever did in the Christian faith was to, was to bring out that you have to have this perfected moment. Just let him use you. You know God had to know when he gets off the boat he's going to get drunk. God knows all things, but God's like, dude, the brother's willing for me to use him. I'm going to use him. I'm going to use his life. And I love what God said about him. He said he's a blameless man, and he's righteous in his generation. Like, come on, blameless? Come on, like, like nothing in you, but God saw what God could do in him. That's what we have to get to. It's not, it's what God can do in me that Christ in me that becomes the hope of glory. And everybody in the room has the story. 
Everybody in the room bears the weight. Well, what weight? The weight of your life story. Can you bear the weight of your own story? Are you too scared to tell anybody? Are you too ashamed to stand up and go, well, let me tell you about me? Those of you that have been here have heard this numerous times. There's nothing fun about standing up and saying I've failed. Nothing. But yet in the bearing the weight of it, it's a weird thing. God still uses me. I don't know. But okay, God. So we have to come to a place that we have to ask, can you bear the weight of your own story? And your answer is going to be, no, I can't. Except that He is in me to give me grace and to give me mercy. And I believe what Robin said is true. He graces all of us. And all I've ever wanted to do on this corner is build a church of imperfect, scarred, broken people who have found hope and healing and are passionate to go tell somebody. And I've said this before. I don't care if those people come to Believers, go to Chapel Hill, go to Crossroad, go to Bluey. I don't care. Just get them in the kingdom. We're building a kingdom. So I want to look at something. Every generation has had people that bore responsibility. Here's what I found out about can I bear the weight of responsibility. The answer depends on where you place value. It's hard to bear the weight of the responsibility of God's kingdom if I give it low value in my life. Because we adults know we do what we want to do. And we will find every possible way to do what we want to do. We'll go in debt for it, get credit cards for it. When it it impresses us, we will make sure it happens. I gave you some pictures, five people that did great things to change the world. Princess Diana, she, who would have ever thought a princess would have gone around to try to make a difference in the AIDS community? Mother Teresa, who would give her life for orphans. Nelson Mandela, President Abraham Lincoln. They all took big bites out of life to try to make a difference in the corner, Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, see, we live off their uh, seeds that, of their lives, but... They all were willing to bear the weight. I feel if Dr. Martin Luther King were alive today and he came by Believer's Church, he would probably say, well done. Because we have people from every color, every race, hanging out together worshiping God. But, yeah, you can give praise to him. (laughs) But he took a bullet for it. Abraham Lincoln took a bullet for it. It's it's amazing. Maybe maybe they went through such pain and suffering for their cause because they believed in their cause. So it makes me ask, maybe the reason we don't see a lot of movement in the South about church, it's just religion, is maybe we've lost the value of what we're really fighting for. And we're fighting more for ourselves than we are for His kingdom. So people don't want to buy into that. I want to buy into something greater than myself. So whether we know it or not, today we sit in a 69-degree room with 
fans blowing overhead and you're going to get out of here in a few minutes and go eat plenty of food. And all over the world, people are dying today because of they're trying to move a kingdom forward. In Egypt, stop killing the Christians in Egypt. In Nigeria, live as a Christian, die as a Christian, proud to be a Christian. In the Middle East, save the Christians in the Middle East. Oh, God, grant us peace in our country, Nigeria. Millions of people. Today, over 2 million Christians are persecuted for their faith in Christ. Every seven minutes, a Christian is martyred for their faith. And yet, you bring this Jesus into America. It's a different Jesus. Because my Jesus is, I'm ticked that YouTube silenced my video. Facebook blocked my post. (laughs) Instagram took my story down. Like that's the height of American persecution. Right? So I don't think it's a bipolar Jesus here. I think there's just something about the American way, the American Jesus that has a very perverted mentality of a Jesus that exists to just bless us beyond measure, but we really don't think that I'm here fighting for a cause because he's coming back. And am I willing to die for it? I hope I never have to in America. It's a blessed land to live in. But are you willing to do it? Are you willing to pay the price for it? If it's valuable, yes. So Jesus, I'll end here. I go back to the chapter, Matthew, and what I ask you to read on week one, I said, read the whole chapter. It is an interesting chapter because it talks about Jesus is coming back. Now with that in mind, think about this. Jesus connects Noah to our generation, says, as then, so now. Could it be that God's at a place where He says, look, it's about to happen. I'm about to return. Are you ready? He gives us this testament in verse 6 of Matthew 24. And you will hear of wars. Anybody heard of those? And threats of wars. Don't panic. If you want to know who God's people are, they're not the panicky people. And yet, over the last two years, we're the most panicky people of panicky people who can panic. I've never seen so many Christians panicky. Oh my God, the vaccine. But do you know what they're doing now? They're putting MRA into into cows and hogs, and that MRA is going into the beef, and the beef is going into the pork. Do you know we're going to be eating an MRA vaccine and get blood clots, and we're going to die? They're doing it. It's a conspiracy. I'm telling you. Do you know what? They're burning down Hawaii. They burned down Hawaii. What are they going to burn next? They'll burn us down next. I'm telling you, they're burning everything. It's going to be all over. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my Don't panic. COVID COVID 5.0 is coming next month. Don't panic. Trump just got a mug shot. Don't panic. His numbers are going up. Don't panic. What if they elect Joe Biden again? Panic. (laughs) You can panic. I'm spiritual, but I'm probably going to panic. But no, not again. I didn't mind one round. (laughs) He says, don't panic. Wonder why? Wonder why he tells us not to panic. This is Jesus. 
telling his followers not to panic. And I would just say, if he tested us over the last year, we flunked that one. So many panicky people. I don't want to go to church. What if I get sick? I don't want to do. I'm going to stay. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. He says, look, don't panic. Why? Because he knows what's in you. Greater is he that is in me than anything in the world. He goes on to say, yes, these things must take place, but I hate that. The end's not here yet. It's going to get worse. He goes on. Nation will go to war against nation. Anybody watching Ukraine and Russia right now? Okay, so we're there. Got a little bit of war going on. Kingdom against kingdom. Famines and earthquakes. Yes, everywhere. It's kind of just all over the place now. But then he just says, don't get too excited. That's just the beginning. That's only the first of the birth pains. There's a whole lot more coming. Oh, no. I don't like this Jesus. I like the nice Jesus that makes bread. And he goes on to say, verse 9 of Matthew 24, then you'll be arrested. I hate that one. Persecuted. Don't like that one. And killed. I, I know in America, this doesn't even make sense to us in America, but the majority of the rest of the world, if you're a Christian, you will be persecuted, perhaps killed, perhaps beheaded, or arrested, or your family gone. As I told the story of the pastor in India that, uh, that I knew, who through Brother Moses told the story. They drug him outside in the yard and they told him never preach again. And if you do, we're going to rape your wife and we're going we're to do it in front of you. And he's like, no, I'm still going to preach. They took his wife out in the street, raped her in the street in front of the children, beat him in front of the children. And next Sunday, they both woke up and said, well, are we going to do church? Yes, we are. We don't even know that kind of Jesus. I hope I never have to get there but it helps me because he says, oh, but you'll be hated. That's personal to all of us now. Because I don't know many people that just loathe or like being hated and loathed. So when it says you'll be hated because you're my followers, what happens is I don't want to be hated. I mean, I want people to like me, so I'm going to be really quiet. I'm going to be a little closet Christian. I'm not going to shine too bright. I'm going to pray silently for people because I don't want to be too bold. I don't want to get too far out there because, you know, I could lose my job. I might could get banned on social media because I don't like being hated. But he says you will be elevens and you'll be hated because of me. And I have to ask myself, can I bear that weight? And then it gets kind of sad. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And sin will be rampant everywhere. And now here touches all of us. And right before I return, the love of many will grow cold. It doesn't say that you'll burn in hell. It just says the love will grow cold. It'll just be like, yeah, I'm tired of church. It's religion. I don't really do religion anymore, kind of deconstructing. I just me and God in my closet. The love grows cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Get ready. Here comes the end. And the good news, verse 14, about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. 
I leave you with this thought. Many Christians are looking at earthquakes, famines, wars, blood moons, and all of that when what we should be looking at is how many people are hearing it. Because when they hear it, the end comes. It lends me to think, how do we go do this? And here's the thought. This is typical. What goes stand out with the t-shirts and scream at everybody coming by? Jesus saves, turn or burn, go to hell. I don't even like the guy's t-shirt, but that's typical what we think when we think, go tell people about Jesus. But I want to leave you with something today. Everybody in the room bears the weight of your story to lead other people to Jesus. I want to teach you how to do it.